Good morning, everyone. Uh, whether you're a man or a woman, we have opportunities for you to worship and fellowship with each other. If you need help resolving everyday conflict, which maybe we all do, there's opportunities for that. If you're a man and a woman and you're married to each other and you need an opportunity to learn about how to resolve everyday conflict, maybe that can help there as well. So uh, excited about all of those things and you can find them on our website and sign up for them there. Uh, Joel has me up here to speak like 20 minutes early today. My mouth isn't even warmed up yet. So maybe we can all do, no, we won't have to do any exercises to deal with that. We'll just jump directly into our new sermon series today, which is called Creation and the Cross, where we are looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's going to be really easy to find our passages for this series. You just go to your Bible and you turn right over to the beginning and the passages are going to be found there. As a matter of fact, our passage for today is the first chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And so if you want to open with me to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start there. And what are we going to see as we look at these first few chapters of the Bible? We are going to see that God, as he's described in these passages, humanity as it's described in these passages, the world around us as it's described here, really resonates with what we experience day in and day out and what we know to be true in our soul. We're going to be in awe of God as we look through these chapters and we're going to see our mess fully on display. And we're going to see God's gracious plan to save us from our mess that is aligned from the very beginning of time. I can't wait to get into it. So let's jump in. Let's jump into a verse that may be familiar to you. The very first verse in the Bible, which says, And God created the heavens and the earth. The first four words declare the star of the Bible and the center of life. And God, right? In the beginning, God, he's the star. He's the center of all of life. And as followers of Jesus Christ, there's nothing we want more than for God to be the center of our daily living. Amen? Amen. Absolutely. We want him to be the absolute center of everything. And yet, every morning, what do I experience? Every morning, I experience this thing called the flesh, which is the biblical word for that sinful residue that is left within me despite my salvation, creeping back up in my life, wanting me to make my life all about me. Wanting me to use that day in order to get my way, to accomplish my agenda, to have people think most about me. That is what the flesh wants. And so I have this battle going on where I want life to be about God. He's the center. In the beginning, God. And yet every day the flesh creeps up and wants me to make life about me. How's Jesus taught his followers to handle that? How has Jesus ta taught his followers to battle the flesh and reorient our entire life around God every day? He's taught us to do that through prayer, hasn't he? He's taught us to do that through prayer. He has even given us a very specific model for prayer and commanded us to pray like this. 
a model that battles our flesh and reorients our life every day around God as the center of everything we're doing. It reorients our life around his name and exalting his name, his kingdom and his reign being established in our life and the life of everyone around us, and his will being the ultimate desire for my day. God has given us a model for prayer and said, pray this. Pray it every day. Pray it all the time because it battles the flesh and reorients your life where it belongs, with me as the center. I love the way J.I. Packer puts it in his book, Praying the Lord's Prayer. He says, were we left to ourselves, any praying we did would both start and end with ourselves, for our natural self-centeredness knows no bounds. Indeed, much pagan praying of this kind goes on among supposedly Christian people. But Jesus' pattern prayer, which is both crutch, road, and walking lesson for the spiritually lame like ourselves, tells us to start with God. For lesson one is to grasp that God matters infinitely more than we do. So if you get nothing else out of this message today, that's a really dangerous statement this early in the message. But if you get nothing else out of this message today, I pray that you will get a newfound commitment, or maybe for you it is a recommitment, to start your day in prayer. Before you reach for your phone, before you get sucked into social media, before you start to return work emails, before you check the news, before you do anything else, to start your day in prayer and start it with the model that Jesus has given us that rightly focuses our heart and mind on him. And he's, his greatness, that he is the center of everything in life. Life's about him. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. But of course, the passage goes beyond that and tells us what God has done. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When I first read that statement years ago, I actually thought it was a summary statement of all of the creation that was described in the verses after it. That verse 1 was just a summary, and then the following verses fleshed out how that creation took place. But that isn't the case at all. Verse 1 is not a summary. It is a description of God's initial creative act of bringing all of matter into existence within the universe. The verb for created here is in the perfect tense. And within Hebrew narratives, when the perfect tense is used, it's never used as a summary for things that are to come. It is always used as a first action with other actions that will follow. And so what we see here in verse 1 isn't just a summary statement and everything else is going to flesh it out. What we see here in verse 1 is the initial act of God to bring everything into existence that is in existence. And he brings it into existence out of nothing. What did God make everything out of? Nothing. There was nothing that existed before God brought everything into existence. Verse 1 is a powerful description of the event in which God brought the universe into being out of nothing. And it is a reminder to us of what? Our God is all-powerful. Our God is majestic and enormous, and he is all-powerful. From the smallest cells in our body to the billions of stars in our galaxy and the billions of galaxies within the universe, he has brought it all into being and brought it all into being out of absolutely nothing. 
Here is where the naturalist who denies God has no explanation. The naturalist who denies God not only has no explanation for how life has arisen from non-life, on a far larger scale, they have no explanation for how everything that exists came from nothing. It couldn't just happen. But the believer knows exactly where it came from and who is responsible for it. When we see the greatness of God's creation around us, it leads us as followers of our God to be in awe of Him, to praise Him, and to exalt Him. When we see the majesty and, and amazing works that God has done in the creation around us, it doesn't simply cause us to be in awe of the creation. We don't stop there as followers of God and say, wow, look at that canyon, it's amazing. Look at that mountain, it's amazing. Look at the stars, they're amazing. It always pushes the believer to go beyond that and to be in awe of the God who made it all. Psalm 19 verse 1 does not say the heavens declare the glory of the heavens. It says the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And so we look around at the majesty of what God has made and we are in awe of him because our God is all-powerful. I would encourage you at some point this week, to get outside and just be in awe of God and what he's made. It's supposed to be a beautiful week this week, weather-wise. So let me encourage you to go outside. Winter is coming, friends. Soon, you may not want to just sit outside for long stretches of time and, and gasp at all that God has made, but it's going to be a beautiful week this week. And I'm not just telling you to go outside. You're going to do that anyway. It's going to be beautiful out. Go outside with the intention of being with God and being in awe of what he has made. And just taking in his majesty and how powerful that he is. And friends, as long as you are right now meditating on our all-powerful God and what he is capable of, ask yourself the question, if God brought everything into existence out of nothing, is there anything he cannot do? If we worship a God that brought everything into existence out of nothing, do you think he can sustain you in your salvation? Yeah. If God brought everything into existence out of nothing, do you suppose there's a chance that he can work those hard and challenging circumstances in your life into something in order to produce the great good of becoming like Christ? Yeah. If our God brought everything into existence out of nothing, do you suppose he can sustain his church against the very gates of hell? Do you suppose he can work in the life of your friend, neighbor, family member who seems to be blind to the gospel and open their blind eyes? Do you suppose that he can be at work, parents in the lives of your kids, shepherding them and guiding them through a world that is opposed to him so that they come out the other side of your home loving Jesus and dedicated to his kingdom? I, I think he's strong enough to do those things. And when we look at the creation, we are in awe of our all-powerful God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But as we read through Genesis we're not just in awe of God and his amazing power and majesty. We are also in awe of our God's design and organization. Our God is the great designer of all that exists. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, 
And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The picture in verse 2 is of a universe without shape. Words are used here in a poetic sense, Hebrew words that mean emptiness and wilderness. And they team up here to give us a picture of matter that is without organization or design. And now, throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 1, God is going to bring organization and design to that matter by separating it into the places that it belongs. There is this separation pattern that we see throughout Genesis chapter 1. You've noticed this perhaps before as you've read Genesis 1, that the word separates is used over and over again. And we see God separates light from dark. He separates water from sky. He separates water from land. He separates birds from fish. He separates humanity from the land animals. God is constantly separating. And what that communicates to us is God is bringing about organization according to his design. When my kids were younger... There were plenty of times that I walked into their rooms and was horrified by what I found. What a colossal mess. Giant heaps of stuff everywhere. And I would tell them, guys, you got to clean your room. And sometimes when I was feeling particularly benevolent, I would even join in and help them in the cleaning process. Right? What did that look like? It looked like separation. Right? We began to separate the clothes out that go in the closet and put them where they go. We began to separate the bedding out that apparently hadn't been on the bed for like four days and put it back on the bed where it goes. We began to separate the garbage out and put it into garbage bags. We began to separate the food out that had been brought up for snacks three weeks ago and was now growing stuff all over it. That went in a special garbage out in the garage because that didn't belong in the house. And as we went through, we continued to separate everything out in order to provide organization according to the design. And that is what Genesis 1 is describing for us. God is bringing separation in order to provide organization to the design that he has. And the design shows anyone who will look that our God exists and that he is great. I have a laptop, and when I use that laptop, I make some assumptions because of the complexity of the design involved in that laptop. I assume that there are some designers out there who put it together. I don't just assume that over time my laptop just fell together and now I can use it. I make some assumptions that there is a designer out there or a design team out there, and that they're actually using designs that others have come up with over time in order to put all of that complexity together. And when we look at the universe that is around us, the complexity of God's creation down to the microbiological level, to the physical constants that are in place within our universe, we see a complexity within creation that far outdoes anything that human beings could ever make. And so where does it leave us? It leaves us in awe of the one who has designed all of that. That amazing complexity, that amazing organization Sir Martin Rees, the astronomer royal of Great Britain, said this, Wherever physicists look, they see examples in the universe of fine-tuning. Right? Who, who has fine-tuned it? 
Who? Famed physicist Stephen Hawking wrote, The remarkable fact is that the values of the physical numbers that govern the universe seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the existence of life. Right? The numbers have been finely tuned. Now, Stephen Hawking would reject the one who tuned them. And yet, he says, as I look at the science, I see what is clear. Everything has been finely designed and organized. Who could have done that? Fred Hoyle, astrophysicist from Cambridge, says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology, and there are no blind forces to speak of in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to put this conclusion beyond doubt. God has made himself known through the intricate design and organization of the universe. And when we stand back and look at it, we're in awe of him. We're just a couple of verses into Genesis 1, and I already want to stop and shout God's praises because we see his power and his majesty and his design, and we are overwhelmed and in awe of him. But, but, but we've got more to do in Genesis chapter 1. Because after verse 2, we launch into summarizing the six work days that are a summary of God's work week. And if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1, then you know there is a pattern to those work days. Every work day contains the same five things. It contains opening words, and God said. A decree, let there be. A fulfillment, what God decreed happens. A divine evaluation, it was good. And then the day of creation, right? There was evening and morning, day, whatever. Every day contains this same pattern. And we see that these days of creation are beautifully arranged in a way that can help us remember exactly what God made as we read it. If you look through these six days of creation, what we see is that days four, five, and six perfectly fulfill everything that God separated out in days one, two, and three. Right? Have you noticed that before? In day one, what does God do? He separates light from dark. Then over in day four, what does he do? He makes the great light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. In day two, what does God do? He separates the heavens from the waters. In day five, what does he do? He makes the birds and the fish that fulfill the heavens and the waters. In day three, what does God make? Right? God makes land and separates it out from the water and vegetation grows according to its kind. And then in day six, what does God make? God makes the land animals and the people that live on that land and take advantage of all of that fertile crop. And so we see this, this beautiful pattern in which days four, five, and six fulfill everything that God has separated out in days one, two, and three. And as we read through these days of creation, there is far more here than we can possibly get into this morning, right? For the sake of time, we cannot go into all of the beauty of who God announces him to be, himself to be in these passages. I would love to talk for an extended period of time about the waters in these verses. Because if you read the passage closely, you see that there are waters that are separated and some of those waters are above the expanse and some of those waters are below the expanse. The Hebrew word for expanse is rakia. 
And then we see, what does God put in the rakia? What does he put in the expanse? He puts the sun, the moon, all of the stars go in the expanse. And so now you have waters gathered under the sky, and you also have waters gathered over all of the universe and what was made. What are those waters? <laughs> right, that, that surround all of the physical universe. I, I don't know. If I had a guess, it's that in, in ancient times, waters represented distinction. They distinguished one people from another, one land from another. And God wants to be very clear that he is distinct from his creation. There's all of the creation within the rakia that is made. And then there are waters and our God dwells over and above all of that. He isn't like the Egyptian gods that they have been under for 400 years. Right? Who's, who's being written to here? It's the Israelites as they come out of Egypt. And he wants them to know, I'm not like those Egyptian gods that you've seen worshipped for the last 400 plus years that are tied to creation, that are a part of creation. I am distinct from creation. I am the God who rules on the throne over a crystal sea. And there is a clear distinction between God the creator and his creation. I'd love to spend some time digging into why God refers to the sun and the moon in this passage as the greater and the lesser light. The words sun and moon are used all over the Old Testament and in the Pentateuch. So why here does he call them the greater and the lesser light rather than the sun or the moon? I think, again, he is creating distinction, helping the people of Israel recognize he is not like the gods of Egypt. In Egypt, the sun and the moon were not only the sun and the moon, but those same words represented the gods of Egypt that oversaw those things. So Ra is not only the Egyptian word for sun, it is the Egyptian word for the sun god. God doesn't want his people to have an understanding like the Egyptians do, that there are a lot of gods out there, and there are, some, uh, there are these under-gods and demigods. And so when he introduces the sun and the moon that rule over the day and the night, he doesn't use the names so that there's no trap of falling into, oh, there's a sun god and a moon god? Instead, he just calls them the greater and lesser lights that govern the day and the night because he is over and over again trying to help them understand life isn't like you've experienced in Egypt with that pantheon of gods that are tied to the creation. Instead, I am over and above everything that I have made. I am distinct from my creation. And there are no other gods involved here. I'd love to dig deeper into the six plus one pattern we see and how we see it throughout Scripture, including at the end of the Bible with the trumpets and the bowls, etc., and how all of those contain this same six plus one pattern. But we don't have time to get into all of that. Oh, I guess I just took some time to get into it a little. What I really want you to see from Genesis chapter one are three important lessons from these days, starting with this God's word is powerful. Every day, God decrees, and what happens? Exactly what he decreed. Every day, God says, let it be, and it happens, because God's word is powerful. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is returning, he is pictured as having a sword coming from his mouth. Why? Because he will speak, and his enemies will be defeated by the word of his mouth, because God's word is powerful. If we want God's power to be unleashed through us, 
to change and transform our life and to make a, a kingdom impact all around us, there's nothing more important than we can do than to dig deeply into the word and decrees of God. To have his word saturate our lives. To dig in deep to the decrees of God and allow them to wash over our minds and wash out all false and untrue things. Maybe you're in a place today where, as you, as you sit here, you're in that place I've been many times where you're like, oh yeah, I've made multiple commitments to dig in deeper into God's word and here's the pattern I was going to use to meet with him and you know it worked for three days and then I missed a day and then it worked for two more days and then I missed four days and then I gave up altogether. Maybe that is the place where you are today. What do I want to encourage you to do? Get back on the horse. I'm a father who loves his kids and there have been times when they haven't been particularly good about communicating with me. And as a father, what do I want in those instances? I want them to feel guilt and shame so that they never speak to me again. Right? No, what do I want? I just want them to come and be with me and spend time with me. And that is what your father wants today. For you to come, dig into his word and spend time with him, recognizing that the word of God is powerful. It changes us as our minds are changed. The second thing I want us to see from these days is God's creation is good. Every day, God proclaims over his creation that it's good. He made everything perfect. He made everything a perfect paradise. Now, we may not be experiencing in that way, and we're going to see in a couple of chapters exactly why we're not experiencing things in the way that he originally made it, in this perfect paradise where everything is totally good. But we were made initially for this perfect paradise, this heaven on earth. Something that's beautiful and perfect and right. And you can tell that we were made for something more than what we're experiencing right now because of the longing that runs across humanity for something more than this existence. There is a longing in the human heart expressed across humanity for some sort of utopia, some sort of paradise, some sort of heaven. Things have to be better than what I am experiencing right now. There is this longing in our heart. Where does that longing come from? Every longing and desire that we have is attached to something that we genuinely need, something that we were made to experience. And so we have this longing that we call thirst because we were made to drink water. We have this longing that we call hunger because we were made to take in food. We have this longing for friendship because we were made for community. Where does this longing for a paradise come from, for something better than what we're experiencing? There's nothing in an evolutionary chain that would explain that. The only way that it's explainable is that we were genuinely made for something more than we are experiencing right now. We were made for the paradise of Eden. And God says ultimately he will remake so that there will be a new heaven and a new earth so that his people dwell the way he originally intended, in perfection, in all that is good. My friends, when, when you're experiencing that dissatisfaction with all that's going on around you, anyone ever get that dissatisfaction with everything that's going on around you? Allow it to drive you 
to this memory that, that God has put within us. Uh, the, this echo that he has put within us, a desire for something more than this world is giving us right now. Recognize that he's remaking. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And let that be a call to live for that new heaven and new earth in everything that you do. God's creation is good. And the final thing I want us to see from the days of creation is this. People are very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see on your faces. I can hear the whispers. I'm sorry, what? People are what? People are very good. Um, Matt, have you ever watched the news? Matt, have you ever been on social media? Matt, would you like to watch my toddler for a day? <laughs> on a more serious note, Matt, do you remember what yesterday was the 20th anniversary of? Really? People are very good? Okay, well, we are going to see in a couple of weeks that we are not as human beings exactly the way God designed us to be. The Bible says that he made us in perfection. We were made to perfectly image and represent God to all of the rest of creation. Made in his image and in his likeness. Now that image and likeness remains, but it is broken and disfigured because of sin, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks. But his original creation purpose was perfection for us as people. Totally like God in character. Perfectly reflecting him as his imagers, as those made in his likeness. Yes, sin has damaged that image in us, but friends, when Christ saves us and the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in us and we get remade into the image of God, day by day becoming more like Christ, with the ultimate culmination according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, being when we see him face to face and are totally and completely like him, there is nothing more beautiful than that trajectory. Nothing God has made is more beautiful, more majestic, more awe-inspiring than the redeemed people of God. I've said to you before in here, there is a reason that in the Bible, paradise starts in a garden and in Revelation ends where? In a city. Why? Why would God start paradise in a garden but end in a city? Because ultimately, the crowning point of all of God's creation and the most beautiful thing he has ever made are not snow-capped mountains, not serene lakes filled with fish, not even the majesty of the billions of stars that are in the sky. The crowning point of his creation and the most majestic thing that he has made is you. And you. And you. The redeemed people of God. And we will have an opportunity within that city to see God's greatest creation up close day in and day out and revel in that. More about the image over the next three weeks. Uh, we're going to dig into the image in, in greater and greater detail in those weeks. But for now, let's recognize God has made us to be in his image. And there will come a day for the follower of Jesus Christ where they will be perfectly remade into the image of God when we see him face to face. We look forward and long for that day. I want to wrap up the message today on Genesis chapter 1.
by looking at the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. Now you might say, hey, that's cheating. Today's Genesis chapter 1. But but I'm of the opinion that the first three verses of chapter 2 really are meant to go with chapter 1. Because at the end of God's work week, as described in Genesis chapter 1, the first three verses of chapter 2 describe the rest that he enters into. After these six work days, we're told that God enters into a time of rest in those first three verses of chapter 2. Which means that God is no longer doing the separating that we see, bringing things into being as he did in these first six days. But it means more than that. According to passages like Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, God is still in that rest. God is still in that perfect rest. And the idea is after a long work week entering into a place of perfect contentment, perfect peace, and God invites us to enter into that rest with him. Did you know that? The New Testament teaches us that God is still in that rest and that he invites his people to come and join him in that ultimate rest, free from toil, free from burden, entering into the rest of God. Hebrews 4.4 reminds us that God rested on the seventh day. In verse 1 of Hebrews 4, it calls us to enter into that rest with God. And then in verse 10, it says that whoever enters God's rest, rests from their toil as God rested from his toil. Again, the picture's at the end of a work week. You ever had a crazy work week? And when the work week was over, there was a day where you were genuinely able to set all of your work aside and to experience rest, goodness, and enjoyment, right? That's the picture here. And God invites us to be free from the toil of our sins, to be free from the toil of our brokenness, to be free from the toil of worry and anxiety about what's going to happen to us after this life, to be free from the worry and the toil of relationship brokenness, but instead to enter into relationship with him and experience the genuine rest of God the peace and tranquility of God. How can we do that? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, it's by coming to him and being his disciple. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are what? Weary and heavy laden. All of you who are weighed down by sin, brokenness, weighed down by the challenges that come with being in this world free from relationship with God. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, through me, you can enter into the rest of God, free from the toils and burdens of your sin. Have you done that? Have you come to Jesus and entered into relationship with them. He says, come to me. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. L live life with me at the center. And then you can have genuine rest. If you've never done that and you want to know more about what it means to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ in which you can have real rest, there is a place on these cards where it says, today I accepted Jesus, 
I would encourage you to check that box, and we'd love to talk to you more about what it means to know Jesus Christ and be his follower and experience that rest. For some of you in this room, you know Jesus, you're his follower, but you've never declared it in the waters of baptism. We have a baptism coming up in a few weeks, and we have a number of people who've already said they want to be a part of that. If you want to be a part of that, declaring Jesus as your Lord and King in the waters of baptism, there's a place you can mark on the card for that. And for most of you in this room who are followers of Jesus Christ, we want to spend some time this morning remembering what Jesus did on the cross so that we could enter into God's rest. We had no ability or right on our own to enter into the rest of God. But because of what Jesus has done taking our sin upon himself, we can enter into that rest. And so we're going to enter into a time of taking the Lord's Supper. And as we take communion today, I want to encourage you to focus your hearts and minds on what Jesus has done on your behalf. 1 Corinthians 11 warns us that we are not to take these elements in an unworthy way. And by unworthy way, 1 Corinthians 11 means by focusing on ourselves in a selfish way. But instead, we're to take these elements fully focused on Jesus, what he's done on our behalf and the future that it gives us, a future where we have had an opportunity to enter into God's rest. The band is going to come and play, and as you guys bow your heads and spend some time with Jesus, they'll just play for a couple of minutes, and then we're going to sing two songs. And during the little bit of time they're playing and the two songs that we sing, I would encourage you whenever you're ready to get up and make your way to the tables and bring the elements back to your seats. And after we've sung those two songs, I'll come back out here and lead us in taking the bread and the cup together. But for now, let me encourage you to just bow your heads and spend some time with Jesus, preparing your heart to remember him. Not in skill or name 
next mile.